Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. Today, we're joined by Nir Kassar, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, founder also of Union Advisors Asset Management Firm, uh, he's on the phone from Washington, D.C. Nir, thanks so much for joining us here. You and uh, your colleague Tim O'Brien from Bloomberg Opinion out with a really interesting column here talking about the pay disparity within corporate America. It seems like CEOs are having uh, seeing you know rising incomes year after year after year in terms of their total compensation. But rank and file employees, not so much. What did you find? Right. Well, I think uh, I think CEOs um, have a real problem on their hands because you know what we're what we're finding out from the data is that we have millions millions of workers in America that are just not making a living wage. You know there are a number of reliable living wage calculators um, that are that are available to anyone with an internet connection, and they all basically say the same thing, which is in the cheapest places in America, a family requires about sixty to seventy thousand dollars a year to just pay for basic necessities and probably double that in expensive places like San Francisco and New York. And yet millions of workers are making a fraction of that. So you know, people are getting up, going to, going to work, uh, and just not able to afford the basic necessities of life. And it just seems to me that that's just inherently a sustainable situation. And, um, and I think it's something that, uh, that corporate chiefs should be more concerned about. Yeah, even in normal times, near it seems like that's something that would be obviously something they should be caring about, but clearly they don't. Can you tell us some metrics and, and why it should be very obvious to leaders at the Business Roundtable that it's not good enough for the richest country in the world? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there are there are a number of um, there are a number of um, metrics that we can point to. Um, a lot of this comes from a few years ago, uh, the SEC in the U.S. Uh, basically. Um, passed a regulation that required companies to disclose um, their their pay ratio, in other words, the pay of their CEO relative to their workers, and this created a trove of data around what, what the median worker is actually making at many of these public companies. And what we're finding is, you know, the um, depending on you know who which companies you put in the category, the median numbers can be anywhere between you know twenty thousand dollars a year on the low end to forty thousand dollars a year on the high end. But there's somewhere in that range. The median pay for full-time workers, for example, at Amazon is roughly thirty-six thousand. At Walmart, which inc- also includes part-time workers, is roughly twenty-two thousand. So you know, in in many of these cases, what you're seeing is these salaries are are wholly inadequate to what ex- Americans actually need to put food on the table. So, near where's the, you know, where's organized labor in all of this? I mean, this has been an issue. We've seen, in, you know, employee uh, incomes, uh, earnings, take-home earnings kind of flat to declining on a real basis for decades here. Is this reflective of the decline of, of unions in America? You know, that's a good question because a lot of people want to know why this is happening. And the truth is we don't really know. We don't know exactly why. There are some popular theories, all of which have some merit. One is the weakening of labor unions. That's clearly something that's driving this. Some people point to lower productivity uh, growth in the U.S. over the decades, and that that is keeping wages down. 
Some people point to shareholder primacy, the idea that companies should really exist for the benefit of shareholders and not necessarily their customers, employees, suppliers, and the like. And the last one is automation. A lot of some people are pointing to automation and saying, you know, there's been a bifurcation of jobs. High-skilled jobs are getting higher wages. Low-skilled jobs are just falling off a cliff in terms of wages, and that that's driving this. But you know, one thing that I would note is I don't know that it, the why really matters so much as. The, 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 the identifying the problem and finding a way to fix it, because ultimately it's hard to imagine a scenario where a healthy economy can sustain itself. Like I said, when you have millions of people who are just not making a living. So obviously, you know, you would hope near that the roundtable will read this opinion piece by yourself and Timothy O'Brien. But if they were too busy, let's say, or if they said they were too busy and you had to <laughs> distill it into a point or two for them, what would that be? Well, you know, I would say to them that um, that uh, many of the things that they're worried about, and they, they do appear to be worried about a host of social and political issues, what I would say to them is a lot of those issues are informed, are fed, and in some cases triggered by the fact that you have so many people in this country that aren't making a living, and that, you know, they are sitting on record profitability. It's not as if they can't afford to raise wages. And that that would be a good investment, not only in their own workers, but also in the health of the country. Um, and in many, and indeed in many of the issues that they care about, this is something they can do something about. This is ent- almost entirely within their control. It would have enormous positive knock-on effects, and, uh, and it's a good place for them to start, is what I would say. Well, Nero, on the other side of the equation is CEO pay, and we've heard about this for years, about CEO pay is just you know, going, uh, it's just out of control. Is there any way to get a rein on that, or is it just not really that much de- you know, I guess, political will for that? You know, it's, it's sort of a, it's an interesting question. And it's sort of strange because, um, you know, on the one hand, it's not a good look for CEOs to make, you know, in some cases, a thousand times what their median worker uh, makes, you know, and, and the averages are roughly two to three, two, three, four hundred times. Um, but in some cases, they're more than that. On the other hand, that alone is not going to fix the problem because if you just take the CEO pay and distribute it to all the workers in the company, it's probably not going to bring them up to a living wage. So, you know, I would say I would say that we first have to start with a substantive problem, which is I think companies have to say we're going to use some of our profits. We invest in many things as companies. We should invest in our workers. We have the profits to do it, and we should do it. But I think also CEOs should think about the optics of what their – um, their paycheck looks like in the, you know, in the tens of millions of dollars relative to what their workers make. And I think just as a matter of good, let's just call it public relations, I think that they ought to be more careful about having a pay ratio that is a little bit more reasonable. It used to be a lot lower in the 1950s and 1960s, and it's just skyrocketed in the uh, intervening decade. Nir, do you see inequality changing in any way in terms of, you know, percentages and so on in the coming years? And and if not, when is breaking point? Well, you know, I worry that we're seeing breaking point now. And, you know, if I might say this, this, I think is really, this should really come to everyone's attention based on these conversations that policymakers are having about bailouts. 
we're having these conversations about whether you know workers are getting uh, the, the 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 relief uh, that that Congress is putting together is so much that it's disincentivizing people to work. And what that really should be telling people is that the relief is meant to put food on the table while COVID is going on. Um, and if that number is higher than what people are making uh, on their job, then we have a fundamental problem. And and I and that coupled with a lot of the protests that you're seeing, like I said, many of them fed by um, by these low wages, and in some cases instigated by the low wages. I think that should be a signal to us that we are pretty close, and that we should do something about this before before you know the, the fire gets higher. Yeah, near it's a point well taken and uh, spoken about often these days. Near Kesar and Timothy O'Brien have written a wonderful. Bloomberg Opinion piece today, it's called Corporate Chieftains Can Talk Less, Pay More. I'm sure there's a lot of people, especially in the worker ranks, that would heartily agree without even reading it. But I do urge everybody to read it. Our thanks to Nir Kesar of Bloomberg Opinion. Fascinating story I found on the terminal this morning uh, with the headline, Busted Retailers Use Bankruptcy to Break Leases by the Thousands. The author is with us right now, Kat Doherty, high yield, distressed debt and bankruptcy reporter for Bloomberg News. Kat, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, I'm in the city today. It's first one of the first times I've been here since March, and I'm just shocked by the number of empty stores and stores for rent where I know back in March, the last time I was here, there were thriving retailers there. Uh, at least I thought they were thriving. Uh, but your story is just amazing. They're using bankruptcy in certain cases to break the leases. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. Um, and a lot of these retailers that have filed, uh, we should note that they were experiencing troubles even before the pandemic. Um, so companies like J. Crew, Neiman Marcus, they were already on a lot of investors' watch list. Um, but the pandemic was really the the point that pushed them towards the bankruptcy court. And they've used the bankruptcy court and all of the uh, the laws and the negotiation power that they have uh, with the judge's permission to get out of these leases. Um, but we've seen major retailers, um, at least 25 of note, um, including Men's Warehouse, um, the, the parent tailored brands, which filed recently, um, and also JCPenney. So what we're seeing is these companies that were experiencing financial strains, um, and also seeing their brick-and-mortar stores uh, close um, and, and trying to figure out how to get, get out of these leases. So bankruptcy basically gives them a quicker option, um, and it allows them to, to cut these leases or renegotiate with their landlords if they're able to get a lower rent. Kat, it seems like everything in about this pandemic has been set up for creditors' benefit because if you look at these retailers, they were they were headed for the exits, right? They were, I mean, it was it was going to be a difficult, protracted, you know, maybe effort, but many of them were going to go away. Under this scenario, some of them have even got PPP loans in order to help them through the bankruptcy process, and their creditors also don't end up with the, you know, the, the rest of the lease to pay up or whatever that that would add to the discussions or the negotiations. Am I reading that right? So it really depends on the situation. Um, these a lot of the main retailers um, that we've been focused on did not actually receive PPP loans. Um, some of the smaller ones have. 
But um, as you as you note, these retailers were already kind of um, on a on a fine line, um, and and could have filed for bankruptcy even without the pandemic. Uh, so the 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 closures um, that are tied to these bankruptcies, a lot of it is because we're just seeing uh, less folks shopping in-store, and that was happening even before you had um, stay-at-home orders. So now that companies have filed, uh, a a big part of their plans for reorganizing is which stores um, can we close down, which leases can we get out of, and on the note of what the creditors are getting, uh, a lot of them are becoming the owners of these companies. A lot of them are able to negotiate so that they can get uh, an equity stake where they will eventually uh, take over and can, in some cases, also uh, dictate who in management is staying, who in management leave, is leaving. Uh, they basically get a, a larger seat at the table. So, Kat, we've got about 30 seconds here. seems like the landlords are holding the bag here. What's their recourse? It's a it's a good question. Often they don't have as big of a recourse or, or any recourse in bankruptcy. Um, but I've also seen situations where retailers will go to their landlords and say, hey, look, we need to renegotiate. If we can't get a lower rent or if we can't get out of these costly leases, we're going to be forced to file or we're going to choose to file. So it's up to you what you want to do with that information. That is a strategy that I think will will continue um, even when the stores start to reopen. There's a bit of a test case in the courts as well, isn't there, Paul, between uh, Starbucks and some other retailers? And I think it's yet to be decided right. who really is uh, going to be left holding the bag. Absolutely. All right, Catherine, thank you. Catherine Doherty covers all things really credit-related, bankruptcy-related, uh, retail-related these days, <laughs> all the fun stuff. And boy, has she been busy. Catherine Doherty with a K on your Bloomberg or at Bloomberg.com. Paul, you know, there's going to be many, many years of stories that will emerge from this pandemic. It's going to be a bit like the financial crisis wherein, you know, five years later, yep. you're still discovering things. Yeah, I think the economic impact here, what we're hearing from a lot of economists is it's, it's certainly not a V, and it's going to be a very long uh, recovery here uh, on the back end of this. Yeah, and we should suggest not just financially, but also personally as well. The, the toll will be a long time coming. Well, as we know now, ammonium nitrate equivalent to 1,800 tonnes of TNT was unloaded from a cargo ship back in 2014 at a port uh, just on the side of Lebanon, the the, the major city uh, in Lebanon now in devastation. And we want to bring in Ayman Kamal to talk to us a little bit about what happens next. Uh, obviously, you know, deaths and injuries and serious loads on the emergency departments in in the entire country but i'm in now we have the french president you know on his way to beirut and it's just really interesting because is he welcome there i i think so i think it's a humanitarian uh, catastrophe that the world hasn't seen uh, for very for for many years and it's uh, I think for the Lebanese people, it's good to see that France is still interested in supporting the people. I think the visit uh, is symbolic in in many ways, uh, but the destruction, I think, anyone that has seen the picture, I think, across the world will will feel some level of sympathy here, even though there are many 
incompetent uh, government officials that have basically been the reason why we have this crisis in the first place. Just to clarify, though, what is the point in the former colonist visiting Lebanon if it's not to come with aid and even unconditional aid at that? No, I think I, I would divide it up into two. I think the humanitarian aid is coming. That, is, that will happen. That is happening for many nations uh, the international community at large, regional countries as well. Everyone is supporting that aid effort. But I think here, uh, France is willing to do its part in terms of aid, but it will be conditional of on the Lebanese government doing reforms. That is really when we're talking about non-humanitarian aid, right? Financial support, long-term support. And I think each country will have to decide, up, uh, decide on its own what, what, what its policy will be. The IMF has its own view, France has its own view, and many Arab countries have their own requirements. But the key thing is that there is a consensus within the international community that they do not want to see any form of financial support over the long term uh, go into corruption, into corrupt networks. They would like to see some of this money end up in real use, constructing the, reconstructing, actually, at this stage, the Lebanese economy. So, Iham, I've just over the last couple of days, like many people, I've read a lot of social media posts from uh, Lebanese, uh, the folks in, in Beirut, and just the rage they feel towards the corruption of the government is just palatable. Is this an agent of change for in the political structure of Lebanon, do you think? Well, I think anger is very legitimate at this stage, and most people are angry. I think it is different this time. It will create the seeds of some change in the political system. But really, the country, in essence, is still divided here. It is divided amongst different religious groups. And although there is anger, at the end, what really happens is each sectarian leader blames another one from a different religious group, and we get into a, an endless cycle of, of blame, really not, con- not a constructive approach. Uh, a real change in Lebanon, I think, will have to come through a new process, elections, or, or some real change in, in, in government. Something in much more institutional. The real opportunity will not be will not happen now. I think it will have to be a new team of parliamentarians that are able to echo these new voices in the Lebanese community. But the society at large, I think, even today, is very divided. I am. Who is Lebanon aligned with in the so-called Middle East these days? And 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 for real. I mean, obviously, there are so many, you know, different coalitions within you know government and in the country but in the main who is Lebanon aligned with well I think that's part of the problem Lebanon isn't aligned with anyone is aligned there are parties in Lebanon that are aligned with different countries in the Middle East so the state in many respects is not independent Sunnis are allied with Saudi Arabia Shiites are allied with Iran Uh, some Christians allied with France and of course that's that's to a certain extent an oversimplification of the reality. But Lebanon as a state does not have a firm policy of who it is allied with. The major problem in the last few years has been that Hezbollah, a Lebanese Shia group, has been indirectly involved in conflict in many Middle Eastern countries. That has made Arab aid 
to Lebanon, which, ha- which was always forthcoming much more difficult. Uh, that's part of the problem that we see today, unless Lebanon or Hezbollah becomes in some way more constrained. It's very difficult to see international parties and regional powers as well give robust support over the long term. Ayham, thank you so much for that. We appreciate your perspective and your experience on that very dangerous and unsettled part of the war, uh, world, which is uh, obviously still reeling from that explosion. Ayham Kamal, uh, practice head, Middle East and North Africa for the Eurasia Group, giving us uh, his perspective there. And uh, Vani, you know, uh, having read a lot just over the last couple of days about this explosion, you just you, you get that background information about how difficult things are in that country even before this catastrophe and uh, this it's just as uh, Iham suggested very difficult to see some change there it's just heartbreaking I mean we don't concentrate on that part of the world enough but the financial impact of this beyond the devastation that Lebanon was already feeling economic and financially is just going to be decades in the undoing yeah absolutely so uh, we'll certainly follow up on this important story well, discussion we've had uh, you know, pretty often over the last uh, several months is why is the stock market going up when the economy is in such peril? And Barry Ritholtz had a great column on this, and it really opened my eyes to a lot of the math behind it. Barry Ritholtz, Bloomberg Opinion Columnist and host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, also Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Barry, your column was fascinating. Give us kind of your key takeaways here as we try to reconcile uh, a strong risk on risky asset markets, including the stock market and an economy that's anything but. Sure. Th- this is the one single question that bubbles up from clients more than anything else. We don't understand. The economy is so terrible. How is the stock market continuing to go up? So based on that constant question, we had to come up with a good answer. And so first place you go to is dive into the data. And the data is pretty compelling. Some of the worst sectors in the economy turn out to be really tiny as a component of major indices like the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ 100. I'll give you a couple of quick examples. Everybody knows department stores have been under a lot of pressure before the pandemic. The lockdown just made it worse. They're down 60-something percent for the year. They turn out to be one one one-hundredth of a percent of the S&P 500 index. Airlines, barely any bigger. They're a quarter of a percent uh, of the S&P 500. And you work your way down some of the worst performing industry sectors, hotels and casinos, travel services, oil and gas. Uh, Just work your way down. If you take the 30 worst sectors, um, subsectors of the S&P 500, if we were to delist all of them tonight, Tomorrow morning, it would barely shave 2% off the entire index. That's fascinating. But Barry, you know, that's one explanation. But the other explanation is that this pandemic is not hurting the people that, uh, that companies need, if you like, for the most part. So yes, consumer companies, of course. But, you know, those with wealth will continue to have wealth post-pandemic. And... That's great for the stock market. Well, yes and no. If, if you look at the savings rate, it's gone up. If you look at consumer spending, it's off the lows, but it's still down dramatically. I mean, the GDP is off by a third. It's down 32% um, from, from quarter to quarter. So 
while wealthy people still have money, overall, as an economy, we are spending much less money. We're not going to entertainment. We're not going to theme parks. We're not going to movies or plays or concerts or anything like that. We're not going out to eat, and we're not shopping at retail. And so in terms of the broad economy, a lot of these things, they're not publicly traded. If they are, they're very small, relatively speaking. But the disconnect is a form of denominator blindness. You see your local, personal um, economy, and it's not doing especially well, but most people's local personal economy is not publicly traded. And where all the strength in the market is coming from are the biggest companies, and these tend to be global in nature. Take the 10 biggest tech companies in the S&P 500. Uh, they're up 37% for the year, and none of them are hurting because of, of the lockdown. If anything, they're thriving. Look, look at Netflix, look at Microsoft, look at Amazon. They're all doing yeah. really well because what other options do people have? So, Barry, you've been in the markets for a long time. How concerned are you that there's really a lack of breadth in this market, as you're just highlighting here, that if you take a look at just the indices, it's literally a half a dozen names or something driving most of the performance. Technically, that's not a healthy uh, component or a healthy development for the market. So we, we like to see breadth, meaning more companies participating in the upside the advanced decline line, we want to see more advancers than decliners, and we want that to be significant. The exception being what happens when there's an externality. And really, the only thing that's comparable to the pandemic, uh, look at Fukushima, look at the tsunami in Japan, how that impacted their market. You had specific sectors that just were temporarily uh, on hiatus until the country uh, got back to normal six months later. This is probably going to last much longer than that. Uh, another parallel is look at 1987. You had something that wasn't from within the economy. You had portfolio insurance and a lot of um, internal problems at the stock exchange that led to the one-day 22% crash. It was really aberrational and not driven by a weakening um, either employment or GDP or retail spending or anything like that. It was its own, its own externality. So I think we have to look at this from a perspective. Investors are giving um, the market sort of the benefit of the doubt in terms of revenue and profits for this year. They seem to be looking over the valley towards 2021. Uh, and everybody is hoping for a vaccine or a treatment before yeah. the year's out. That's, that's going to be the big variable. Barry, we're almost out of time, but are you in Maine, perchance? No, this year I am not in Maine. And in fact, when I went, when I was preparing this column and looking at various sectors, uh, I looked at travel services and airlines down as much as they were. And then I went back and looked at all of the events, conferences, speaking engagements, all that thing, those things I had and literally everything was canceled from March 2000 through June 2021, every event that I have scheduled. So it makes perfect sense that the airlines are getting hurt, the hotels are getting hurt. They are not going to be able to recover until people feel comfortable being in crowds again. And that's probably a solid year away. 
Right, well, I suggest that because this would be the time of year for Camp Kotak, David Kotak's yep. camp. And is it happening virtually, Barry? Um, a handful of people went up. It's probably 5% of the usual crowd. Chris Whalen is up there. Uh, I know K- David Kotak is not there. Normally, I would be arriving yesterday, the Wednesday before the Friday jobs report. And uh, this is going to be the first August jobs report that I will be seeing away from the state of Maine in probably 12 years. It's amazing how we we, we, we measure our years in yep. things like Jackson Holes and Camp yep. Cotox and, <laughs> uh, you know, SALT conferences. Barry, thanks for joining. It's always a fun time speaking with Barry Rittles, founder, of course, of Rittles Wealth Management, but we know him maybe more so for Masters in Business and also his Bloomberg opinion columns. And Paul, you were talking about his opinion column earlier. They always make some kind of uh, an impression. Yeah, absolutely. And this one kind of broke down the math and really showed where the performance and, and lack of performance is in this market. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Thank you.